the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Let us go back now to 2004, the time when Pope John Paul II published the encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia, in which he said he wanted to awaken in the Church after a special synod on the Eucharist, he wanted to awaken a kind of Eucharistic wonder or Eucharistic amazement in the Church. It's as though he felt that the faith of the Church had gone a little bit lackluster, a little bit tepid, a little bit bland with regards to the faith in the real presence and the miracle of the Holy Mass. And so he wanted to really rekindle this flame that seemed to be going out from all the, the stories he heard and all the reports that were given to him by bishops. And, and just it seemed as though the attention that the Lord deserves in the Holy Eucharist seemed to be waning. So he said, at the very beginning, he said, in this encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia, he said, the church draws her life from the Eucharist. This truth does not simply express a daily experience of faith, but recapitulates the heart of the mystery of the church. Recapitulates the very heart. If you have a bad heart, if you've got cholesterol in all your arteries, and you've got uh, arrhythmia, you've got to fix that heart. You gotta get an operation, you gotta get a bypass, something. And that's what he's saying. That the, that the Eucharist is really recapitulates the very heart of the church. He says, in a variety of ways, she joyfully experiences the constant fulfillment of the promise, Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Words that the Lord addressed to the distraught disciples when he was leaving them, when he was about to ascend into heaven. But he had already given them the gift of the Eucharist. So he said, you know, I'm with you always. In what way are you with us always, Lord, if you're ascending, if you're leaving? <laughs> In what way? Lo, I'm with you, he said. And Pope John Paul II continues, I am with you always in the, to the close of the age, but in the Holy Eucharist, through the changing of bread and wine into the body and blood of, our, of the Lord, she rejoices in this presence with unique intensity. Ever since Pentecost, when the church, the people of the new covenant, began her pilgrim journey towards her heavenly homeland, the divine sacrament has continued to mark the passing of her days, filling them with confident hope. And that's why he insisted that the Eucharist really contains the Church's entire spiritual wealth. 
you if you go to a church and and you enter and it's a beautiful church, maybe a Baroque church or something, a really I don't know some neo Gothic splendor, and you look for the Eucharist and it's not there. That happened once to Saint Maria when he was, I believe, he, he was in Milan or some place, and he went into a really beautiful old church that was like amazing, but it was under construction. It was un, and there were scaffolding everywhere, and uh, and so he couldn't really see the artwork. But he was looking around for the tabernacle. He was looking around for the Blessed Sacrament. He walked in, and there was scaffolding everywhere, and there were workers walking back and forth, and. And there were some people there, so it was a functioning church, nevertheless. And but where's the where's the blessed sacrament? Like he went to the center, it wasn't there, and so he he stopped a worker. He was with Don Alvaro. He stopped a worker. He said, "Excuse me, do you know where the blessed sacrament?" And the guy said, uh, yeah, "Over there, somewhere over there, like that, like gruff." And uh, so he walked over there. And, um, and there, sure enough, there was a cheap little altar where you could see the vigil light. And there there was the Lord in a kind of put-aside place. And he knelt down and he said, Lord, I don't think that I am in any way better than anyone, but I needed to come and visit you <laughs> among this splendor that is this church now covered over and draped over. I've come to visit you. You are the center of of life in the church. And uh, Don Alvaro took note of what he was saying. It, it, it moved him a lot to hear that in that, just in that momentary context. And, and this is what Pope John Paul II had tried to underline, that, it, that, that the Lord in the Eucharist is really the entire spiritual health and wealth, and wealth. Christ himself, he said, our Passover and the living bread the greatest riches of the church are in the Mass. And perhaps you remember that in the year 2000, Pope John Paul II went to, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Mass in the Senecal. And he walked in there into the upper room. It seemed as though the very fragrance of the upper room seemed to come back to life as he walked in there. Here, the Vicar of Christ on earth goes into the Senecal. He's like Peter during the Senecal. And he took the bread, he took the cup of wine, this is now our Lord doing all this in that upper room. He said, do this, taking the bread, taking the wine, do this in memory of me. It's as though those very words of our Lord suddenly seem to resonate more strongly. Pope John Paul II was very moved. And he, was, he recounts how he was so grateful to have been able to have been there. And by that stage, he was only a few years from his death. And we know that also, it's, well, it seems to be a kind of an echo of what happened to Don Alvaro in 1994, when he had turned 80 in, in March, so it would have been March 22nd, uh, 1994, on the last day of his week-long pilgrimage in the Holy Land, he managed to be able to go to the Senecal, that very same place where Pope John Paul II would go a few years later. Perhaps you can see now in your mind's eye that picture of, of him crowding around with others around that small little altar in the Senecal. On one side, Don Javier, then I've, I honestly don't remember who the others were, and there were some, you know, some women of Opus Dei there around as well. And there he was, kind of, he looked sweaty, tired, but 
it was so meaningful for him. But he did not realize that as he was celebrating that mass, that this was his last mass ever on earth, right? He flew home that night on, on a jet, and, and as he arrived home in, in Rome that night, he had a heart attack and died. Went straight to heaven. I mean, he, he was ready, like this guy was ready. It's as though he was saying, now you can let your servant go, like Simeon said, when Simeon had seen the Lord and held him in his hands, given to him by a blessed mother. Now you can let your servant go. I've seen the Lord. <laughs> It's the last prayer that we priests say, Nunc dimitis servum tuum. It's the last prayer in, in, in the office. He was 80 years old, but like anybody else, he did not know that this was his last Mass, of course. He didn't say, well, it's my last Mass, tonight I'm going to die, so, you know. He had no idea he was going to die. I mean, he was 80 years old, he knew he, he didn't have another 30 years ahead of him, but... Uh, I mean, he was so moved and filled with faith and he paused and reflected on where he was, who he was in that moment of his Mass. Just as every priest is when he celebrates Mass. That's our danger of routine. Well, I have another Mass, I have a second Mass today and a, at a t such and such a time and we could, we could easily forget there's nothing inherently Impossible, the, the priest could forget. So, Pope John Paul II, in that same encyclical, asks, Did the apostles who took part in the Last Supper understand the meaning of the words spoken by Christ? Perhaps not. Those words would only become fully clear at the end of the triduum, the sacred triduum, the time from Thursday evening to Sunday morning. Those days embrace the Mysterium Pasquale or Pascale. They also embrace the Mysterium Eucharisticum. So the Paschal mystery and the Eucharistic mystery are two reflections of each other in that sense. It was like the cosmic moment when when the divine seems to touch the real world and raise it up and envelop it in its own mystery. You know, you'd think in a mass that you would, you would practically pass out if you really see, if you could really understand what was happening. Yet even the apostles themselves were not, were just barely aware of the grandeur of that moment when he said, take this, all of you, and eat it. Take this, and drink it. Take this cup. Do this in memory of me. Okay, we got that. Yeah, I took note. I'll do that. Yeah, whatever. You know, but but they're barely, barely conscious. It really took time for the grandeur of that moment to really sink in, to see all the connections between this supper in the cenacle with Jesus, to connect that with the Passover of the Jews in Egypt. And how they sprinkled the, the, the blood of the lamb on the door lintels that would protect them from the devastating angel. The blood of the lamb. And then connect that with the, with the discourse in, in, in the synagogue of Capernaum in John 6. 
And then how after the supper the Lord took his disciples to the Kidron Valley and then into the Garden of Olives. Pope John Paul II mentions that even today the Garden of Olives shelters some of the most ancient olive trees. I hope one day to be able to go to the Holy Land and and embrace some of those olive trees, you know, and maybe grab an olive and swallow it or something. I don't know. Get something of, you know, maybe our Lord saw that one of those trees, maybe it was a tiny little sapling at the time. I don't know. I remember going some years ago to Paradise Valley in, in B.C., and we were on an excursion, and they told me that these trees here that you're seeing, these massive trees, uh, I guess they're redwoods, or I don't know what they were, but they told me these are 800 years old. And, you know, people were joking and just hugged the trees. You know, I'm a hu- tree hugger, so they, they would say, look, this tree that you're hugging, right, they would say, was alive when St. Thomas Aquinas redacted the Summa and put the finishing touches on the Adorote Devote in the 13th century. And that's why, of course, our father, St. Josemaria, wanted us to meditate on this hymn, the Adorote Devote. He wanted us to meditate on that every Thursday, a day particularly dedicated to the Blessed Sacrament, to, to, the, to the Eucharist. And we often do it with the Blessed Sacrament exposed. And on the eve of the first Friday, we do a little bit of extra prayer in front of the Eucharist to precisely to keep alive that Eucharistic sense of amazement. And ten years after that, and Don Javier wrote a beautiful long commentary on the Adorote, on this hymn attributed to St. Thomas Aquinas. I believe it was Urban VIII, Pope, who, who entrusted that task to St. Thomas Aquinas on the occasion of the, the miracle of Bolsano, where he instituted the feast of Corpus Christi on the occasion of this famous miracle where there was this uh, German priest who was passing by Bolsano and he was, he was kind of doubting his faith. He was doubting in the reality of the real presence. The Kind of theologians of the time were be debating the meaning of, is it a mysterious presence? Is it a real substantial presence? Is it merely a sacramental presence? And they were throwing out these difficult to understand theological words like transubstantiation, like what the, you know, what does that mean? He was, he was confused and he wasn't sure and he began to doubt whether the Mass he was celebrating actually brought about the real substantial presence of our Lord as he had been reading. He had doubts about that. And in the, in the midst of his doubt, when he went into his, this small little church uh, in Bolsano, he, he celebrated Mass. And at the moment of the consecration, the, the, the host began to, to bleed, to, to drip blood. And, and, and you know, this covered the entire corporal that he was using. And he brought it. He brought it to the Pope, who was in a nearby town of Orvieto. It was examined, and, and that was just to confirm the Pope Urban's uh, uh, conviction you know, that there needed to be a feast of Corpus Christi. And so since then, in the 13th century, the, the feast of Corpus Christi has been celebrated throughout the world. And we will celebrate it also on Sunday, tomorrow. And 
and the, you know, the purpose of the Pope in writing that, uh, that, that encyclical, as well as many others writing about it, was, is really to, to reinvigorate our sense of mystery, our sense of wonder, our sense of amazement. And we can ask, okay, fine, I can have, I can go, wow, this is the real presence, wow. May, is that wonder? Is that the wonder you're asking of me? Uh, but you know, what is the wonder that we have to have really based on ultimately? I would suggest it's, you know, it's not so much grandeur or majesty. Like you see an amazing landscape, a, a beautiful scene of some mountains or something, or I don't know, a volcano or something going up in, you know, okay, that, that amazes us. That's, wow, the, the grandeur and the majesty, I suppose, of, of God's creation. And that, that causes wonder. You've probably seen these drone shots over valleys and cliffs and and. We didn't always have drone shots like that, and they, they, you ne- inevitably think, "Wow, that's amazing!" The, you know, nature and stuff. And is that going to happen to us when we look at the Blessed Sacrament as He is exposed right here in a little ciborium, you know, with a veil that is a bit too big for it right now, you know? Um, or even if we were to have it, as we often do, in a in a beautiful monstrance, yeah, there's some element of majesty there, I suppose. But we want to stop and see to what extent we really are enamored with the real presence of God. And for us, we need faith to produce this wonder. In other words, if we don't have wonder, it's as though we don't have faith. But the wonder is not so much based on the majesty and the transcendence and the greatness, but more on His coming down the wonder that is provoked by his condescension, which is what happens in the Holy Eucharist. The greatness and grandeur and, and majesty of God comes down into this little little host, this little piece of bread. Mm-hmm. And we want to see and, and stop to see to what extent we are really enamored by this real presence of the grandeur of God hidden, hidden there under these appearances. Mm-hmm. And the possibility on top of that that we have of actually receiving the living God here and now. And we're not just receiving a body in the sense like like a corpse. We're receiving the living, resurrected God made man who is both in heaven and here on earth. So it's as though we're really receiving the bread of angels because he is with the angels now. Panis Angelicum. And so Pope John Paul II said, whenever the church celebrates the Eucharist, the faithful can in some way relive the experience of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says in St. Luke, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It's a beautiful phrase. Their eyes were opened. Like what? They were closed with the eyes were closed or no their eyes were opened of course they had open eyes before but not really open they suddenly took in much more than they were taking in up until then before that they were just floundering walking whatever some guy next to us whatever yeah he's telling us stuff but now their eyes were open now their eyes were open they recognized him at the breaking of the bread 
He sat there and he, in the fractio panis, the breaking of the bread. But at that very moment, he disappeared. Boom, he's gone. And as he disappeared, they somehow mysteriously understood that he was now in the bread. The same one was now alive in that very bread. It just looked like bread, but it, wasn't, it was no longer bread. In the fracture bread, the breaking of the bread. In fact, that's how the Eucharist used to be called. It was called the fracture panis, the breaking of the bread. They didn't initially call it the Eucharist or, or Mass. That all came later. Mass means it's from the very, the, the, the words that are said at the very end of the Mass. We say, you know, go, you know, ite misa es, you know, you are sent. Mass from sent. That's the result of that wonderment is that we said we have to let other people know about it. We have to we have to talk about this. We have to we can't just sit here and 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 sit here. We have to go. Ite misa es means go. The mass is ended, but it really means you are going out to be sent. And these disciples recognized him, these two from Emmaus. And ultimately our love for that intimate conversation in the Eucharist ultimately comes down to faith. So as I say these words of the majesty of God's condescension to us, we can only really appreciate that if we now make acts of faith. You know, there's a, there's a nun in Spain, her name is Sor Veronica. She's a very, very charismatic founder of this uh, religious order called Jesu Comunio. And they put out videos of her, and she's just absolutely stellar when she speaks. I mean, she's just wonderful. And uh, it's a very, very growing religious order there in Spain. Uh, I think that's what it's called, Jesu Comunio. And they've lived great poverty and, and great love for the Eucharist. And she says this in one of her talks there to the nuns. I mean, she speaks in Spanish, but had translated it. And she says... Um, I think, and life confirms this to me, she says, that even the most skeptical man is touched and attracted by the beauty, the peace that emanates when seeing deeply believing men and women who kneel before God. Just seeing a person kneeling with their calm gaze fixed on him, their hands together, believers whose joy and vital drive are surprising because, as Balthazar says, man is never greater than when he is on his knees. We're on his knees because uh, it's not because uh, we can't stand. We're on our knees because we're adoring, we're praying, we're, we have faith. She says, I have sometimes shared with my sisters a memory that has marked our lives the prayer of our mothers. I will remember as long as I lived that when my mother took me shopping with her, on the way home she would go into a nearby church and kneel in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And she was fixated as she stared at him. And although I did not stop fussing and fidgeting around, she remained still, without impatience, while I looked at her lips that whispered prayers in a low voice. She's looking. It was a short visit to the Blessed Sacrament, but it seemed super long to me. 
And at the end of her prayer, she simply told me, Look, look, there is Jesus. Send him a kiss and tell him that you love him. Go. In Spanish, mandele un beso. I think, she said, that this simple way so simply taught me to adore. I looked where she looked, and I could not doubt that Jesus was in that white bread. Today, I know that my mother's look at the Lord is my inheritance, that, and, and that sending of a kiss to Jesus was confirming my faith. Every day, the gift of faith overwhelms me more. God is here. What happens in us, hmm, that, that we end up not being able to look at Jesus in the, in the Eucharist without believing. Hmm? So that we make an act of faith, we make an, a genuflection, we do something that reflects our belief, is what she's suggesting. And so... We understand that we have to be more and more vivid, more and more alive in our faith. And that's what we ask of the Lord now as we have you here exposed. As St. Thomas says in his Adorote, Credo quid quid dixit dei filius nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. I believe whatever the Son of Man said, the Son of God said, there's no word that is more true than what he said. Nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. There's nothing even more true than, than whatever our Lord said. And, and this has led many to, to meditate on the adorote devote. If you're saying there's nothing more true than the words of the Lord, in some ways, to deepen than that, we have to meditate on a beautiful hymn by a great saint like Thomas Aquinas and it's a good thing. Saint Josemaria wanted us to meditate every Thursday on the Adorote. We can sing it. Even the, the, the hymn itself is beautiful. The hymn itself allows us to memorize it. So, because there's this unction that we can develop throughout the hymn, we can tap into its theological depth. It's not, it's not kind of abstract. It can really move us. Maybe one, one week this phrase moves us, another week another phrase. It is really a particularly beautiful hymn to sing, to understand it, even in Latin. It doesn't go as well when you, or as smoothly when you, when you sing it in English. Uh, in fact, I've never sung it in English, but, um, but the Latin is amazing. But it doesn't mean you have to understand all the Latin, don't worry. But I mean, you, you, know, you can do one of those side-by-side -side things, and, uh, and the Lord will lighten you at least to a couple of words or a few things. You know? And... And it's beautiful to think also that, that ultimately it was Eucharistic piety that was behind the, evangeli uh, the evangelization of old, of Europe, and ultimately of the new, of the new world as well. And it, it helps so much to remember how the first evangelization of Europe was done. There was a a pagan from the second century, uh, Pliny the Younger, he wrote to the Emperor Trajan and he, he presented Christianity, he described it as an unstoppable contagion that has spread throughout our society. 
in such a way as we know that they were called even to trial. And a Christian, this is what Diognetus said, or the letter to Diognetus says, a Christian around the same time, he wrote that the soul is to the body what Christians were to the, to the world. The Christians with their Eucharistic faith are the same as what the soul is to the body. It just gives it life. And, and so the first Christians with their way of living and their word were really uh, a testimony of souls that really yearn for faith and that faith was contagious and, and those who adhered to that faith were really felt as though they were newborn creatures and something very beautiful crossed the lives of those men that really completely, those men and women that completely changed the lives uh, of those people completely. They saw in this, in this land the, the victory of love. Instead, and this is uh, what one of them says, instead of hate, they saw love. Instead of lust, and they, they just had the possession of love. They had the tenderness of chastity gentleness instead of anger, patience instead of aggressiveness. They saw free men worshipping the true God instead of being enslaved by idols. And this desire has to ultimately burn within us too. With the Feast of Corpus Christi, let us ask the Lord now that all over the world there will be processions there will be expressions of faith. The Blessed Sacrament will be carried throughout the streets. And that we really pray, as we are united to all those people, that this provoke a lot of faith and confidence in God as they look upon that monstrance carried through the streets. And it was one of my memories that I have seeing Pope John Paul II um, kneeling in front of the monstrance as as it was being carried down the Via Merulana with these beautiful oak trees leaning over, almost worshipping as well. And, uh, and, and in so many other places where I've seen this, I hope you, you're able to go somewhere to a Eucharistic procession. It'll be, you know, that, that Eucharist will be like what they called uh, years ago the WMDs, the, these, these weapons of mass destruction, right? They get, the Eucharist can destroy hate, it can destroy evil, it can destroy our bitterness, it can destroy sadness, it can destroy lack of hope, uh, just like a weapon of mass destruction destroys everything in its path. And this, this is what the Eucharist does, it will destroy all the evil around us. And so let's ask our Blessed Mother that this Feast of Corpus Christi really uh, destroy aimlessness and lukewarmness in us and in all those who participate in it. She will guide us to that. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, to receive.